We're beginning here in Matthew 21 this morning because this is the beginning of what's identified in church history as the Holy Week or the Passion Week. So on Wednesday night, we covered this with the guys. The, when you look at all four Gospels together, there's 30 chapters cover this final week of Jesus' life leading up to his death, his burial, his resurrection, and then those final commands of commissioning. That represents a third, 33% of our Gospels. So when you look at all of the information that we have concerning Jesus as our God, tabernacling in the flesh, the weight has, there's a, there's a great amount of weight in this final week. The final week is introduced with this scene that's known as the triumphal entry. So today is known as Palm Sunday. This is the day when Jesus finally comes into Jerusalem and he's presenting himself as the anointed, predicted king of the Old Testament. So when you look at Matthew chapter 21, the prophecies that are being fulfilled, he quotes out of Zechariah chapter 9. says, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. And as we go, we're going to turn back into David's life in just a minute. But David is going to image this for us in another man's life. Your king is coming to you. He is the one who has made himself known to you through a variety of different ways in your life. And he is the one who has chased you down. He is the one that has come to you and taken you to himself if you say yes. And we'll sit in these ideas this morning, but keep that line before you this morning. Behold, your king, the king of the heavens and the earth, the king of the nation of Israel, the king of your soul, whether you recognize him or not, is coming to you. And how is he coming? Lowly is that imagery, sitting on a donkey, not sitting on a war horse. He's coming in, presenting himself as your king. Do you want him, yes or no? For many on that day, they're singing out of Psalm 118, where they're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna, it's the Hebrew, but it means save now. When you turn back to Psalm 118 and you read the context, it's all about God is our savior. He's our deliverer. And this cry in the psalm is, save now, Lord. Send now your prosperity. And the idea is, send your king and his kingdom and his economy and his military and all that the king is to represent. Send now that prosperity of the promised king to the nation of Israel and to our own soul. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord in the name of Yahweh, Hosanna, save now in the highest, is this proclamation. I want you to keep those ideas as we turn back to 2 Samuel 8. So make your way to, well, 2 Samuel 9, sorry. So 2 Samuel 9 is... I'd be cautious because this is, this is me and my faith and how I read through David's life. In my opinion, this is the climax of David's image to us of the anointed Messiah. So there are many different snapshots of David's life where uh, you know, different circumstances are held above others. 
There's many ways that his whole life represents this image of the anointed king to us. But in uh, next week, we will, as we sit in Resurrection Sunday in Easter, we're going to focus on the body of Christ there in the Gospels. So in a couple of weeks, we're going to sit in David's life where he drops a hand grenade in his lap and just blows up his life. So this chapter, it's, it's everything is good. He's sitting as king. He is in Jerusalem. The enemies have been subdued. God has given him incredible promises. He's asking what he can do for God in regards to building the temple. God tells him he's going to build a house for David. And now David's, he's not just asking what he can do for God. He's asking what he can do for another human being. But another human being that has a, um, a role in a covenant and a promise that David made in history. If you do not know who Mephibosheth is, and this is whose story we're going to sit in today, he ought to be one of the images that you have memorized and that you were able... He, he gives us an image of ourself in relationship to our king. He should, the image that he, should, that he provides to us in regards to that relationship should be up there with your other biblical heroes. Most people know the story of Daniel or the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego or the story of David killing Goliath. There's these famous stories that we teach our kids. But here's a story that we don't teach that often because it's kind of weird. But when you sit in the imagery of it, oh boy, does it communicate the gospel. So... Here we go, 2 Samuel chapter 9. Now David said, Is there anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? He said, At your service. Then the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to, to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, Here is your servant. So David said to him, Do not Fear, for I will surely show you the kindness, show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. And he bowed himself and said, What is your servant? that she should look upon a dead, such a dead dog as I. And the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, 
I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. You, therefore, and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him, and you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat at my table always. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord, the king, has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for, as for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. Now, this idea of lameness in Mephibosheth's life, this is the definition. It means to be physically crippled. There's, there's a limp. But the idea that it conveys is that Mephibosheth is defective. He is disqualified. He is hindered. He is unable. He is unfit. Ultimately, Mephibosheth is limited in his position as a man, his position as the old dead king's grandson. You got to sit in this image of lameness that's being provided to us. Is this, this is a description of every single human being. We are all limited to one degree or another. We are limited in our number of days. What do men and women attempt to do to keep living on? You start getting, I'm middle-aged, so I'm already start thinking, I'm on the downhill slope. I have a limited number of days. What am I going to do with my days? Am I going to be remembered by my children, by my grandchildren, by my great-grandchildren? Is this world going to remember? All these different meditations, as every one, single one of us looks at the limitation that we have in this life, and that limitation is death. And we're told that death is it's a separation from God. It's a separation from the spirit, from the body. That's, uh, death is the result of sin. So when we sit in looking at Mephibosheth, he's giving us a snapshot of all the different ways that you feel lame and that you feel crippled. We can look, you can list out all of your heroes for me whether a man, whether a woman, whether in current life, whether in history. And here's a life that is worth living kind of hero for you. And I'll still be able to point out to you all the different limitations, all the different ways that that soul was unfit, all the different ways that that soul was broken, all the different ways that that soul was alone, hindered, Limited in being able to do what they desire to do because of their own personal disqualifications or just because we're human beings and we are all subject to the fall and subject to the temptations of sin in this world. This is the imagery that Mephibosheth is providing for us as we go through this narrative. Now sit in the full narrative. In history, we are told three times in 1 Samuel that Jonathan, Mephibosheth's father, and David were the best of friends. And in their best of friend relationship, they made a covenant with one another. Jonathan freely gave up his right 
to inherit the kingdom of Israel as the king's son before Saul was dead, knowing that God had chosen David as the anointed king. Jonathan is the one who had the courage to say, I know that I am not the appointed king. I know, David, that you are the appointed king. You are my brother. You are my friend. I love you, and I'm going to support you in every way. When you become king, I will be at your side, David, was Jonathan's commitment to David. What happens to Jonathan? Not only was Jonathan faithful to, his, to David, Jonathan was faithful to his dad. So at the end of 1 Samuel, as we are watching the archers finding Saul, Saul's body filled with a couple of quivers, there Jonathan is beside his father dying in battle. And Jonathan's body, along with Saul's body, gets nailed to the wall of Bethshan. Now, when that event happens, we're told when that news makes its way to Saul's home, to Jonathan's home, in 2 Samuel chapter 4, we're told that Mephibosheth is five years old and he has a nurse, a woman who's responsible for taking care of him. She hears about Saul's death. She hears about Jonathan's death. She hears about the Philistines. There's all of this turmoil. She picks up Mephibosheth, gathers, the, uh, gathers whatever belongings she can, and she starts running. And in her desire to protect Mephibosheth, she drops him. He's fallen. And when he hits the ground, he breaks. Both of his feet break. Anybody broken an ankle before? It's a long recovery. I sprained my ankle when I was in eighth or ninth grade. I can roll my ankle just looking at a pebble because it's weak. Mephibosheth has sat in his, from five years old and forward up until this scene with David as a broken and crippled man. But what do you think as Jonathan, as he was still alive with his one-year-old, his two-year-old, his three-year-old, his four-year-old, his five-year-old son Mephibosheth on his lap. What do you think Jonathan was communicating to Mephibosheth about his grandpa Saul, king, and his best friend David, the future king? Do you think that Jonathan was communicating to Mephibosheth, you know, Mephibosheth, you're third in line to the king, to being king of Israel? When your grandpa dies, I'll be king. When I die, you'll be king. Is that what Jonathan was communicating to his son? When your grandpa dies, my friend David's going to be king. And here's David's heart. Here's why I love him. Here's why I support him. Here's why I want you to support him. Son, you will not be king of Israel, but you will be great in the king's kingdom as you serve him. Anybody remember stories as a young child that your parent would have told you? Do you think as, as Mephibosheth is, is healing from this brokenness, as he's hidden away in a different community, 
His dad has passed away. We don't have any testimony in regards to mom or other siblings, other family members. But you know that multiple people were communicating to him, David is a usurper. His uncle, Ishbosheth, seized the kingdom of Saul for himself and declared himself to be king. More than likely, while Ishbosheth was still alive, Mephibosheth would have been in Ishbosheth's household as he is serving as king. But Ishbosheth is murdered. And in that scene, we are, we are told that, um, that Mephibosheth is now in this community in another person's house, not a family member, under, you know, being cared for by another man, another household. We're told that he's married. He has his own son in this chapter. So he's aged. He's gotten married. He's fallen in love in some fashion. But every single day, he feels and he sees his crippledness and his inadequacy. Now, as men, we need to be strong. We need to be powerful. We need to be able to go to war. We need to be able to go to the farm and provide for our families. This man couldn't do any of those things. He was different from everybody else around him and sat in that differentness every single day. And there's a position that we're told here that when Mephibosheth is brought into David's presence, this could be his last day. David tells him, don't fear. Which means that Mephibosheth, as he comes into David's presence, he's filled with fear because he's filled with the unknown. Let's pick through this in order, because here David is remembering in his position, again, this is why I see just as a climax in his kingship where he is imaging Christ for us. Here David is looking to his historical relationship with Jonathan and the covenant that they made, and David has a question in his own soul. Is there a descendant? Is there a son of Saul? Is there somebody of the family of Saul that I can show the love of God? And that's what this word, this word kindness, it's, it's said in the Hebrew, it's God's loyal and sacrificial kindness, his mercy, his love, and not only his sacrificial, but his covenantal love that he has for us. David, in his heart, a man after God's own heart. He's not looking to, is there anybody in Saul's house that's still alive that's a threat to my kingdom? That's not David's heart. David trusts the Lord. And that's why he images for us a man after God's own heart. But David, in his relationship with God, is there a son of Saul that's still alive where I can show the kindness of God to this man? And he sends, and he finds out, and the servant Ziba comes, and he tells him about Mephibosheth and where Mephibosheth is. If David doesn't know where Jonathan's son is, what do you think that that says about David? David loved Jonathan, right? Do you think David met Mephibosheth when he was born as a toddler, as a five-year-old running around? You know, David was on the run for multiple years, so we don't know what kind of interaction David may have had in this young child's life. We don't know how the news of this child's birth would have made it to David's ears along the way. 
David doesn't know if any of Jonathan's sons or if this was the only one, if he's still alive at all. He's asking the question. But what it means in the context is that Mephibosheth is in hiding. Mephibosheth is afraid of the anointed king of Israel. And he's afraid because he doesn't know who David is. He's sitting, potentially, he has some memory in regards to what his dad may have communicated about David. But more than likely, he's been sitting in his family's life and the house of Saul. And most of the house of Saul is not going to have nice things to say about the house of David. So Mephibosheth is in hiding, living his life in obscurity, afraid of the king of his kingdom, because for his understanding, David has the motivation and David has the right to execute him as a potential usurper to his throne. And a lot of the commentaries want to press into the only reason that David is looking for Saul's descendants is to make sure that he can cut off any competition. And that is so far away from the heart of David. It is not expressed in the life that we have the testimony of David in the Bible. David is genuinely seeking to show the kindness of God to fulfill a promise that he made to a best friend that's gone and that it's dead and this memory pops into his head and gee, I wonder if there's a descendant. And Ziba says, yeah, there is. He's in Makir's house. We'll see Makir later on in 2 Samuel. He is a man who is loyal to David. We don't know if he is at this point, but based on David's treatment to Mephibosheth, Makir becomes a very valuable supporter of David later on. But he's in this community called Lodabar. Lodabar means no pasture. So again, think about naming a community. It's probably in the hill country. It's rocky. The people who founded this area, who named this community, you know what? That is not a good place to raise sheep. There's no pasture. It's pastureless. But again, it gives us, the word gives us a snapshot of just the community that he's sitting in. He is broken, he is hiding, and he's in a fruitless community. And what does the king do? Behold, creature, of the God who created the heavens and the earth. Behold, your king is coming. For many of us, we can look back in history and we remember those sequence of events when your king came and got you. And this is why this is so powerful for me. I was just as broken and as lame and as unfit, limited, no value, wanderer, fruitless, just the, the snapshot that Mephibosheth provides for me is who I was. Yeah, I had a good life. I had good relationships. I'm from a great family. I have always been loved and cared for. But I'm still a human being who has suffered a crippling in my own soul because of the fall. I am a human being who has damaged my own relationship with my creator based upon my sinful choices and behaviors in rebellion, in rebellion before I even knew who God was and even in willful rebellion against him after I knew who he was. 
And I sit in this proclamation in the Gospel of Matthew, and I sit in David's behavior in the chapter. The king came and got me. Seeing and knowing and understanding all of my brokenness, that I'm a child at that point in history. Again, the Bible defines us outside of a relationship with God. We are a child of disobedience. We are a child of wrath, and we are underneath another king, the king of Satan, the king of self, the king of culture. We have all these other kings, and that's why we're pressing into this imagery of First and Second Samuel of this contrast between kingdoms. And here, David imaging for us our king who came and got us. And as Mephibosheth comes into David's presence, as he comes into the king's presence, as he has been, listen, the language is that David sent and took him. To take something, there, there's a possession that's associated with it. There is a, the word can also mean seize. There can be a force that's associated with it. When God stepped into my life, he took me. He seized me. He put me in a position before him where I couldn't turn to the right hand or to the left hand, and he made himself known to me. Here I am. Here are my promises to you. Blake, make a choice. Am I your king, yes or no? And do you want to sit at my table for all eternity, yes or no? And in fear... In lack of understanding, I didn't know the Bible. I just knew little snippets. And the little snippets of the heart of God that I had at that moment, I have nowhere else to turn. I want you as my king. I want a place at your table. But look at what Mephibosheth does. He enters into David's presence in all of his crippledness. Both feet are broken. How do they heal? What's his daily chronic pain like? Is he in two crutches? Does he have a singular cane, a singular crutch? How is he able to be mobile? But as David, sitting on his throne in the, in the presence of the king, as, as Mephibosheth slowly limps his way to the presence of King David, he falls down before the king in absolute humility and in fear of the unknown. And I love David's words to him because it's do not fear. Next week, as we sit in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, when he reveals himself, comes into the presence of the disciples, what are the words that come out of his mouth? Do not fear. Because they're afraid. They're unsure. Here is a broken man in the presence of royalty. Here we are as broken and crippled creatures in the presence of a holy, perfect creator. Do you feel the gap? Do you feel the weight? Do you feel the trembling? And then do you hear and know and understand the gift of his words? Do not fear me. I love you. But the reason I love you is not just because of who you are. It's because of a covenant that was made before you were even born. 
Before God created the heavens and the earth, the, sal- the plan of salvation, the plan of the gospel, was already in agreement between Father, Son, and Spirit. Before the foundation of the world, the Son was going to be sent to tabernacle as a man in this flesh to offer his body for our sins but not to be separated from his father eternally because of death but was able to take his life back from death oh death where is your sting where is your victory it's gone because the one who is life has life and that's the image that David is providing to Mephibosheth he is providing I am not the source of your execution Mephibosheth I'm telling you not to fear, and I am inviting you to a place at my table based upon a promise that I made with your dad. And I can only imagine your dad's love for you, Mephibosheth. I can only imagine how Jonathan wanted to be your dad, to watch you grow, to watch you become a man, to see you get married to see you have your own children, to walk alongside of you in all of those life experiences. Mephibosheth, I can only imagine the joy that Jonathan would have had in those seasons of life with you. And I'm not your dad, but I'm inviting you to my table just like I invite my sons to my table. Do you want a seat at my table, Mephibosheth, yes or no? What's Mephibosheth's response? Who am I that you're even looking at me? One of the incredible things about Mephibosheth, I don't think he ever bought into the lies of the house of Saul that would have been promoted to him his entire life. How he responds to David, and not in this section, but as we continue on in the narrative, we'll see Mephibosheth a couple more times. He is completely and totally loyal to David as king. He's not looking to usurp the throne. He's not looking at his crippledness in any way as woe is me and I could have been king of Israel. We don't get any of that glimmer from Mephibosheth's heart. We get this man who has been humbled through his crippledness, is living daily life in that crippledness in his culture, and seems to still be triumphing in his faith in God and his trust in God. Because again, when the king sent for him and seized him and took him and brought him into his presence, Mephibosheth didn't continue to try and hide and run away. He came and he humbled himself. My life is in the hands of the king. I can't believe that the king is looking at such a man as me. And I can't believe the words that I just heard come out of the king's mouth that he is inviting me to his daily table just like the rest of the royal family. You see the imagery of Mephibosheth? This is what we are going to do going forward from here on out as a congregation. We're going to shift in 
how we take communion. Because communion is this invitation to Jesus' table. We are told as often as we gather together as believers in Jesus that we're to remember him, but that we're supposed to do something in remembrance of him. I have, you know, just in my own heart, I have a very special and unique for me relationship with God through communion. It's something that I learned early on in my walk and just turning everything off and sitting down and letting my soul be quiet with him in prayer, opening up his word, having music on to worship. This is something I did on a weekly basis in our congregation in Salt Lake where the church was open early in the morning. I only lived a couple miles from the church, so I came in once a week for a while. That turned into twice a week. We also had a men's Bible study early in the morning. It was easy for me to do that. But I had this very private space because very few other people came. I had this very private space in communion with God. And it's been essential for me in my walk with the Lord. I need to remember my King. I need to remember him moment by moment throughout the day. I need to remember him throughout the week. But I need this weekly. And that's why as a congregation, we have communion open weekly. I get more questions about this than I get questions about anything else because it's different. But for me and my perspective, it's, it's, we don't come to Jesus's table through any other relationship. It's not through a pastor, it's not through a congregation. The table is always open to you and it's always offered. And I'll teach on it here and there, but even in me, as, as I get more and more questions about communion, um, I feel that I've been neglectful in teaching its priority as much as I should. Because I know in me the importance that it has in my own soul, my own relationship, but I need to be able to remind you and convey to you the importance that it is. As we're going to sit in the Gospels next week, you sit in Jesus' triumphal entry, presenting himself as king, as the promised king. There's a section of all of the Gospels that processes through most of the week. But when you get into the Gospel of Luke and you're looking at this last Passover meal, which that's what this is to image, Jesus said, I have yearned, desired, passionately and zealously desired to share this meal with you. And it's at this Passover meal, which is symbolizing a sacrifice for the nation of Israel, for blood to be applied to households, so that when God came into Egypt, that the firstborn, that the children of Israel would not die, but the firstborn of Egypt were going to die in the judgment. It's that meal, and it's that imagery where Jesus, as he has invited his disciples to the table with him, and there they are. He takes the bread, and they break off pieces of the bread. And as he's passing it around to each person, again, this idea in the Eastern culture of sharing a meal, you're sharing the same piece of food with another human being, you're becoming one in relationship, this table fellowship that occurs in Eastern culture. That's why this image of Mephibosheth sitting at the table of David is so important. 
But as they pass this bread around the table and each one takes a piece, becoming one with, Jesus says, take it. You, you take it to yourself in possession. And you eat it. The image that it's to give to you, this is to represent my body. And this is what we're going to focus on next week. The Almighty God became this flesh and tabernacled among us. He took a body to himself. And as he's passing this bread around the table, Jesus has attempted to prepare his disciples for what's coming. Here's my body. And my body is broken for you. And it is given for you. And the imagery of that is in a substitutionary sacrifice. With the cup. It's take the cup. Seize it. Take it. Your choice to come to the table. This cup. This fruit of the vine. This is my blood of the new covenant. Here was a covenant that God made with the nation of Israel that they're celebrating on Passover. Here is the blood of this lamb, and this blood is to be a covering. It was a promise and covenant of God to the people on that night that they were to remember all the days of their life on an annual cycle. And Jesus, as he's sitting in this feast, and as they're sitting in the imagery of that feast, Here's a new image for the blood. And my blood that's in this body is going to be poured out for you. And it's a symbol of a new covenant and a new promise, which is anybody who comes to the creator through faith in Jesus Christ as king, as savior, as God, as Messiah, you were welcome and invited to come to his table daily. But as often as we gather together as the body of Christ, it's your choice. You come to the table and you take the elements that are to symbolize his body and his blood and remember him. It's the only reason why we gather is to remember who our God is. We sit in his word so that we can know who he is. We sit in vocal worship so that we can praise him and proclaim him and shout and have joy and pray and petition and ask for forgiveness. All of that imagery is in worship. This thing that we do is extremely cultural. We're going to have a true love feast on the 30th of this month, which is what the body of Christ in the early church is coming together doing and having a full-on feast, sitting at tables with one another, knowing that each and every one of us in all of our brokenness has been invited to the king's table. And this is the final image from Mephibosheth. David didn't heal his feet. As long as Mephibosheth lived, 
And as long as he continually, daily, and always sat at the king's table, Mephibosheth was still a broken man. But he was a loved man. He was a man who was provided for. He was a man who had a seat at the table just like any other of the king's sons where everybody's sitting and just seeing each other from the chest up, equal at the table. And when you lift up the table, you know, the tablecloth and look at everybody's feet, everybody is broken. I don't care who your Christian hero is, broken man, broken woman, dependent upon the grace of the king to be invited to the table. So worship team, come on up. And here's what we're going to do. So we're going to shift how um, just our order of service until Jesus says otherwise. So in this first song that the worship team is going to lead us through, that is your time to come up and grab the elements. And again, this is, if you are a believer, you come to the table and you take. If you are not a believer and Jesus is your king, you're unsure, don't be afraid. What are you waiting for? You were invited to have a place at the table of the king for all eternity. Come and take, but come when you take and go back to your seats, hold on to it. Because here until, again, Jesus says otherwise, we're going to participate in this remembrance together every single week because that's why we're here. We're here to remember, we're here to celebrate, we're here to pray together, we're here to sing, we're here to sit at his feet, we're here to fellowship, and we're here to take the same body of Christ in unity in our relationship with him because he and he alone is our king. So worship team, let's have at it. Church, come on up and grab the elements and hold on to them.